God reminds us in his word in Psalm 103 that our God is like a father, and as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. And so praise be to our Lord's name. Now in connection with our sermon, which is based upon Psalm 87, we'll also read from the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 16, two portions from there. And this has to do with the the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah are the authors of Psalm 87. They wrote a bit over a dozen psalms in the Bible. And this tells the, the story of their father and his rebellion against the Lord and the punishment that the Lord um, dished out upon Korah and his family. But it also shows the grace of our Lord and our God as we'll see this morning. So, Numbers chapter 16. Korah son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, sons of Pelath, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were over two, were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and all his followers, In the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy. And he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put fire and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Moses also said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that God, that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle, and to stand before the community and minister to him. He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, and now you are trying to take the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, But they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the desert? And now you also want to lord it over us? Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and and vineyards. Will you gouge out the eyes of these men? No, they will not come. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not accept their offering. I have not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. 
Moses said to Korah, You and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they and Aaron. And then jumping ahead to verse 31, we have the judgment of the Lord. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them, and they perished, and they were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, The earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Our text for this morning's sermon is Psalm 87, Psalm 87, which has the subtitle, A Song of the Sons of Korah. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 87. There the psalmist writes, Of the sons of Korah, a psalm, a song, He has set his foundation on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, O city of God. I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia too, and Tyre, along with Cush. And will say, this one was born in Zion. Indeed, of Zion it will be said, This one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, This one was born in Zion. As they make music, they will sing, All my fountains are in you. As far as the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to us. Brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, most of you are probably familiar with the, the hymn writer John or Jonathan Newton. He wrote one of the most famous hymns in the Christian world. Even if you haven't heard this man's name, you've probably heard the hymn, It's Amazing Grace. And he wrote this hymn reflecting on the grace that God had shown to him. And a second hymn that reflected on the grace that God had shown to him is Glorious Things of You Are Spoken, a hymn that's based upon Psalm 87. Psalm 87, verse 3, Glorious Things Are Said of You, O City of God. Now, Jonathan Newton, he was, he grew up as, as an unbeliever. He grew up as actually a slave trader for many years. And he, he describes himself as a blasphemer, and an unbeliever, a, a God, ungodly man. He made his living at sea, traveling from West Africa back to the Americas, selling people. 
but at some time during his, his time at sea, making his living in this way, God worked and God acted and God worked faith within his heart. God's amazing grace preciously appeared the hour that John Newton first believed, and from that point on, Newton's life, it gradually changed. He became a a pastor. He worked alongside a a man named William Wilberforce, and together they worked to to ban slavery and, and the slave trade. He worked tirelessly to bring people to faith in Christ Jesus and he wrote the hymns like Amazing Grace and and Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Psalms that showed the grace that God had shown to himself. Reflecting on his travels and on his life, Newton saw that there was a wide variety of people who were, who were counted as born in the city of God. They came from different backgrounds. They came from, from different life experiences, from different positions. All were fallen creatures who needed God's grace to be brought into the city of God. He knew how completely undeserving each of these people were. And yet, they were counted and are counted today as born within God's city. So John Newton, he saw himself and and others as an example of the grace that is revealed to us in this psalm. He saw that he had been born within the city of God along with many people from different backgrounds. And this morning we'll look at Psalm 87 under this theme, the wonder of God's grace to us, Or perhaps we should say the wonder of God's glorious grace to us. And we'll see the grace that's shown to the authors of this psalm. The grace that's shown to the city, to the nations, and to the children. And so we see the the grace of our God, first of all, in the very opening words of this psalm. In what's called the the superscription, or sometimes it's called a title or subtitle where it says, of the sons of Korah, a psalm, a song. The sons of Korah, they were worship leaders, people appointed by God through through kings like David and, and Solomon and Hezekiah to lead the worship in the tabernacle and later on in the temple in Jerusalem. And by God's grace, these people were, were given, or the people of Israel were given gifted musicians and and gifted um, accompanists to to sing and to help lead in the singing of these songs that that we have in the Bible and and also in the writing of these psalms. And that's an act of grace from, from God to his people as he gives us songs that we can sing back to him and reflect on his glory and and his praise. But the greater grace is is seen in the history of the sons of Korah themselves. These these men, they were descendants of the tribe of Levi, one of the twelve tribes of, of Israel. It was a tribe that was set aside and given the special task of maintaining the, the worship of the Lord. And one of the, the clans of Levi called the Kohathites, 
They were responsible for, for carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the, the holy seat of God. And they, they had to carry also a table that stood in the tabernacle and had the bread and different items on it. And they carried the, the lampstand. The, it's like a menorah. And they carried the altars and another of, a number of different objects as they, they traveled through the, the wilderness until they, they managed to enter Canaan and, and later Israel. And there they cared for those items. So they had a privileged position They were given a privileged position by the grace of God. During the time in the wilderness, we're told in in Numbers chapter 4 that they had the task of carrying, carrying these items from place to place as the camp moved, but they weren't actually allowed to to touch the items themselves. They had to be wrapped. Otherwise, they were threatened with death. Many of the, the Kohathites, they began to, to look down on this task, to despise this, this task that they had. They weren't even allowed to, to touch or, 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 I guess, even look at the items themselves. And they began to covet the role of the priests who were able to actually use the items in worship. And so eventually one man, Korah, he rose up. And with 250 other men, he he challenged the leadership of Aaron and of Moses. They wanted the priesthood for themselves. And as we read in in Numbers 16, we're told that as a result of their rebellion, the earth, it opened its mouth and, and it swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. God judged them for their rebellion. He judged them for their rebellion against the order of of worship that he had established. And yet in Numbers chapter 26, we have a census given. And in that census, it's said, the sons of Korah did not die out. God showed grace to the sons of this man. He spared them from death and he allowed them to continue their work in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. He showed further grace to the people of Israel and Judah by giving this family the gift of writing psalms, psalms to be, to be sung in the worship services. And they wanted the whole people of God to join them in in praising the Lord for his amazing grace, for his amazing glorious grace that he had shown to them. Things that we still have the privilege of doing today in our own worship services. And the sons of Korah, aren't they an amazing picture of the grace that's shown to us as well? You know, how often don't we rebel? How often don't we lead others in rebellion against the Lord and his will when we we grumble and we complain about events in our lives? When we look down on the will of God for our lives? We're all far more guilty than Korah ever was. And if we were to, to look at our ancestors, to look at our, our parents, 
sorry mom and dad, but if we were to look at the lives of our parents and to see their hearts, we would see that they too are guilty. And if the sons of Korah were spared despite their parents' guilt, and we are spared despite our own parents' guilt, how amazing isn't the gift of God to us? His grace, as he shows love to us, as he doesn't condemn us for our own sins of rebellion, for our own guilt, for our guilt in Adam and, and, and the guilt in Eve, the guilt of rebellion against God. You see, he doesn't reject us or condemn us. He doesn't say, I want nothing to do with you. He doesn't ignore us. He brings us into his church as we see in this song. Not just as sideline figures. He says, not just of the city, but of the people who live in this city, which is his church. He says of us, glorious things are said of you. He says, you are my child, the one I've loved and redeemed, not because of anything in you, but because I wanted to. And that's grace. That's undeserved, unearned love. But moving on from the authors, then, God shows further grace. He shows grace by selecting this this holy mountain, Mount Zion. And he founds a city there as we read in verse 1. And this mountain, it's not really a mountain by by B.C. standards. It's about 2,000 feet above sea level. Burnaby Mountain is about 1,200-ish feet, and Golden Ears is... 5,600, so that gives you kind of an idea that this is about a third of the size of, of the Golden Ears. It's a lot lower than many of the mountains around us here in, in British Columbia and the Fraser Valley. And this mountain, well, it had been occupied by people called the, the Jebusites. It had been occupied by them for, for thousands of years probably since the days of Joshua. And the Jebusites, they built this small city called Jabus on this mountain or hill, and it was around 15 acres in total size. It had a population of about 2,000 people. Not very large, even by standards of that day, although it definitely was a city. And in this city, they built a walled fortress, a walled fortress which was called Zion, which is what the, the Hebrew word Zion, it means fortress. And this mountain, it re- remained occupied by the, these Jebusites who were a Canaanite clan until the time of King David. And King David, he captured this fortress. And at that time, he renamed it Jerusalem. And it was called the City of David. And the name Zion also, also stuck. And that's when we can say that God, he founded, he established this this city of the old Jerusalem, the city of David. Out of God's grace, he chose it to be his holy city. It became a place of of worship, the holy mountain. In 2 Chronicles 7 verse 12, God says to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself. 
He chose this city to be the most significant city in in all of Israel. And eventually, under the Lord's blessing, this city grew tenfold. It was 150 acres. And now it's even larger, obviously. And it became the, the most populous city in the land of Judah. So clearly God showed his, his love for this city. He blessed it and caused it to grow richly. And yet the reason that the Lord loves the gates of Zion, as our psalm says, that he loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob, it's, it's not because of its size or because of its splendor. It's nothing inherent in itself. It's because of what what. God decided it would take place within this city. And keep in mind that, that this city is a picture of the church. He chose this city to be the place of his temple, the place where he would dwell in a special way. And during the different festivals, people from all over Israel and, and Judah, the dwellings of Jacob, They would leave their towns and villages and they would gather in Jerusalem in worship for these different festivals and for the weekly Sabbath where worship took place. And they would remember and reflect on the different acts of God, of of his salvation as he he saved them from Egypt. Remember that the, the, the fourth commandment about resting it says, remember the Sabbath day. And that was given to, to the Israelites, a day of remembering the mighty acts of God. And that's what took place at this temple, his acts of salvation. And so the singers of this psalm, they're, they're admiring what God in his grace has created and allowed to take place in the city. How the people of God would, would gather and, and they would have, have joys that they would share and, and griefs that they would share. And they would have, have the privilege of worshiping and, and knowing God. The one true God who in his grace chose to dwell among them. And that's something that we also experience as the church. As believers in Jesus Christ, our Savior, he has poured out his spirit upon you. And you experience a a much more greater and and intimate privilege than the Old Testament saints had. They they had to to travel from across the country, from from all the dwellings of Jacob, they would travel to the city of Zion in order to worship God the gates of a distant city, but, but God, he, he dwells within you through his spirit, and he makes you his temple. He makes you the place where, where you can worship him freely, and, and even more greater as we, as we gather together in worship, all as we gather as different parts of, of God's holy city to worship him, to praise him, It's then that we can say with the author of of the book of Hebrews, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, as we worship with innumerable, innumerable angels in festal gathering. 
You see, brothers and sisters, by grace through faith, you experience already now something of what we will experience in even a much more glorious way than, than we experience now. We will experience it when we are gathered with all of God's people. All of God's people, past, present, and future in that heavenly Jerusalem. God says of, of Zion, God says of his church, God says of you, glorious things of you are spoken. God has glorious things to say about us, to say about his church. And that's crucial for us to recognize. Because on our own, we are sinful, we are wretched, we are pitiful, we are miserable, and that can weigh us down. That can put a lot on on our minds. And when we see the sins of others, we can lash out, even against others who are also members of our church. At times, we can be filled with negativity about the church, and we can express that, that negativity, that pessimism towards one another. We can dwell on the mistakes of the past. We can fear trajectories about the future. We can fear discussions and divisions that might exist among us. It's true the church on earth can be torn apart by debates and by schisms. But despite all of that, God says, you're glorious. You're my people. And I give you my glory in Jesus Christ. He chose us to be his people. He's the one who has made us glorious. He's the one who says glorious things about his church because in his grace he set his love upon her and made a covenant that he will never break. He promises to establish her, to cause her to prosper. And he does that also by bringing in not just the Israelites, but bringing in all the nations. Because God's purpose and God's grace with with Zion, it's not limited to, to Zion itself. In his grace, he has the whole world in view. And so in verse 4, we read, Among those, I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who know me, Philistia too, and Tyre along with Cush. And I will say, this one was born in Zion. And these were nations who, who would have known about the Lord. They interacted with Israel and with Jerusalem, but they didn't worship or fear the Lord. They were outsiders in, in that sense. And if you've heard of, of Rahab, boys and girls, you, you may think of, of Rahab as the, the woman in, in the book of Joshua. That's not to who this refers to. This actually refers to a nation, a nation that we call Egypt. Rahab was a, a mythological sea creature, and it came to symbolize the nation of, of Egypt. It's the ancient oppressor of God's people. And Babylon, Babylon was likely the, the greatest threat to Jerusalem when, when this psalm was written. 
Philistia. Philistia was a nation right beside Israel, and they were constantly provoking Israel and enslaving Israel. Tyre was a source of, of trade, but it was also a source of false worship and idolatry. And then Cush, the nation of Cush was, we think it's a city-state, and it was somewhere near either Ethiopia or, or Nubia. What we could say for the Israelites would have been the very edge of the world. And so with this list of nations, God is saying from the near to the far flung, from the enemies to the indifferent, all of these nations will be made citizens of Zion. The nations who refuse to worship God. And again, it's an act of pure grace. None of these nations were given any role in in temple worship. They were all nations that had failed to to worship God. In fact, people who weren't Israelite couldn't even enter the, the temple courts all the way. And apart from Cush, all these nations had tried to destroy Zion. They were God's enemies and and his people's enemies. But God's response to that isn't destruction. It's to include them among the register of the city. And they will not simply know about God. They will truly know and worship him so that it can be said at the end of verse 4, this one was born here. This one and that one was born in Zion. They have the same birthright as any Israelite, as anyone who was actually born physically within Jerusalem. These nations will have the same. And three times they're mentioned as born in Zion. And if something's mentioned once in Scripture, yeah, we'd best pay attention. If something's mentioned three times, well, it should really stand out to us. These people, they belong just as much to the city of God as the natural, biological, and believing descendants of Abraham. God creates a family from every tribe and nation and people and language, all born within Zion, and they are the ones who know me, says God. And if we have a hard time recognizing how how wondrous how amazing this is because we don't really understand these nations and and the relationships that these nations had with one another. Think think about how Ukraine and, and Russia are interacting right now. They're fierce enemies, right? Well, when God says Rahab and Babylon will be included as, as those born within Zion given the rights of citizens. That's like Ukraine saying Russia and and Belarus will be counted as as Ukrainian citizens, as equals with us, as those shown grace and mercy, but far more than that because there's, there's there's no recognition of difference anymore. That's what's happening here. These are the people who are, who are the enemies of God's people, the ones who wanted nothing to do with him, the ones who wanted to, to see his people destroyed. And they will be numbered among those who are born there. 
The ones who have never heard of him and are indifferent, they will be numbered as born there. They will know God. But the greatest act, the greatest picture of grace here isn't just these nations. It's not just Ukraine and and Russia. It's this is what God has done for you and for me. Because we were once enemies of God. And yet God has made us citizens of Zion. And we are recorded, as it says in the ESV, they'll be recorded as he registers the peoples. And that basically means, well, in the ancient world, they had the royal cities. They had books that had lists of names. And those names, if you were in that book, you were exempt from taxation. You were exempt from military service. You were exempt from all these different responsibilities and you had all these different benefits of being recorded in the registry of the nations. And that's what God has done for us. It's a picture of the grace we have in Jesus Christ. We don't do anything to earn our salvation because he came into the world to earn it for us. To found this city, this glorious city of Zion, and he didn't just do so in some abstract way or sense, but he came to save specific people, just as this psalm mentions specific nations. He comes to to save those who are written in this registry, people whose names were written in the book of life. And when Christ died, when he gave up his spirit on the cross, he had your name in mind. Your name was on his mind as he suffered. He knew that his blood was being shed for you. He knew that you could never enter the city on your own and that you needed him, that your best would never be good enough, that my best will never be good enough, that it's all grace and it's glorious. And what a glorious picture of God's love and his grace that that we should be numbered among his children. And it also reminds us, God's grace reminds us of how we have, we can look to those who aren't numbered among his children. At least not now. Sometimes maybe you've found yourself thinking, I don't know if so-and-so will ever be a Christian. I don't know if so-and-so will ever return to church. Well, when that is our thinking, brothers and sisters, we underestimate the power of God's amazing grace and his power to work within the hearts of those who refuse to acknowledge him, of those who might even be enemies of God. Think of Paul, persecutor, blasphemer, throwing Christians in prison, and then becomes probably the greatest missionary and biblical writer that has ever lived. Through Jesus Christ, he was also numbered as a citizen of the heavenly Zion, just as John Newton, who I mentioned before, is numbered among those citizens. 
And the miracle that Jesus worked in Paul's life or John Newton's life is no less than the miracle that he has worked in the life of of every believer, including your own. It's no less than the work he can perform in the the life of those who do not believe. And our, our call then is to continue praying. But more than that, if, if you do not believe, then there is a message here too, because there is only one way into this city, and that is Jesus. And Jesus is the door. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it is only through him that you can enter. But the gracious promise is that anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, Dutch or Canadian, Chinese or Korean, Nigerian or Filipino, anyone can enter through him. And so our call is to place our faith and and trust in him and him alone, to acknowledge our sins and our unworthiness and receive and trust the grace of God that is poured out to you in Jesus Christ. And if you've been reborn into that heavenly Zion, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then this psalm presents you with the opportunity to look at the grace of God as it's reflected and and shone in your own life and then show that grace and that love to those God places in your life. Because God says, at least of our Christian brothers and sisters, that this one was born in Zion. And it's all by grace, and so we respond by showing grace. And when we recognize that, when we truly recognize the grace and the love that has been shown toward us, then we can begin to love others with that same grace. And then finally, in this psalm, we see God's grace shown to the children. And this brings us back once again to the sons of Korah, those people who led God's, God's, all of God's people in worship. The last verse, where it says, As they make music, they will sing, All my fountains are in you. The ESV, which here at least might be a better translation, it says, The singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. These two groups of people who are leading God's other people in worship. And these almost certainly would have been sons of Korah. Well, these people who who lead God's people in worship, what do they do? They celebrate that all my springs are in you, or fountains. On the outskirts of Jerusalem, there was a water source called the, the Gihon Spring. And for this city of Zion placed in the desert, that spring, it was a source of life. A life of life that flowed into the city. Well, the city of the heavenly Zion also has a spring. We also have a spring of living water, and that living water is found in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 7, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem 
for a festival that was known as the the Feast of Booths. And during this feast, the the Jewish leaders, they would take water from these, these pools that had flown from the spring and this water would be poured out on, on the, the altar and different parts of the temple. And, and it was a sign of cleansing and purification and renewal. And while they did that, they would repeat the words of Isaiah 12, verse 3, which says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And when Jesus saw them, them doing this, carrying out the ceremony, He stood up, and with a loud voice we're told that he cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his water will flow rivers of living water. You see, ultimately, Jesus is our spring. He is our life source. He is our source of cleansing, of renewal. And all of these different nations in this psalm, they have one thing in common, they are saved by life-giving waters of grace through Jesus Christ. And how can we respond to that? How can anyone respond to that other than to say, all my springs are in you. My life is found in you. Well, one day, we will also mark a great day of victory with dancing and, and, and singing And on that day, we will be able to acknowledge face-to-face with God that our springs are found only in his glorious grace. The grace of God that has been shown to his church has been shown to us by including us in his church. And so, brothers and, and sisters, this psalm, Psalm 87, it at least gives us a glimpse of the heavenly Zion, the the city of God, the city of glory. It gives us a picture of ourself as we are included in that city. The city was one like many other ancient cities. It says you and I are one like many other human beings. Not super special on its own, and yet just as God chose this city in his grace, so God has shown his grace to you. And he calls you to respond to that grace. To remain steadfast and faithful. To praise him. To love one another as brothers and as sisters. That same grace, it was shown to us in Jesus Christ. And he supplies us with grace each day with springs of living water And so we confess, all my springs are in you, Lord Jesus. Amen. In response, let's rise, if you are able, and sing from Psalm 87 as we have it in the book of praise.